Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions, please email us at info at If you would like to support this ministry financially, visit us at capitalchristian.com and click the Give button in the top right corner. Good afternoon. Man, I'm so glad you made it today. If you are excited to be in the house of the Lord, can you turn to your neighbor, your first choice, and give him a high five this morning? Come on, how many of you excited to be in God's house? Come on. You guys are amazing. You are my favorite service in the whole world. I love you guys so much. Turn to your second choice and say, you know what? I've been praying and fasting that the Seattle Seahawks will not make the playoffs this year. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. And all my Dallas Cowboys fans said, amen. It's going to get, one of these days, I'm going to lose control of the crowd. It's going to lose control. Well, you guys are amazing. I'm so glad you made it. Have you guys been having a good summer? Good summer, good summer. Well, we've been in a series called The Prison Epistles, and we've been taking the whole church through uh, the book of Colossians. So this is, I believe, our, is it our fourth or fifth week, I think, that we've been in this series. So I'm going to take about five verses. Next week, we're going to be in chapter two. We did it, guys. We got out of chapter one, right? And we're in chapter two next week. So we're going to end chapter one today. Uh, If you're taking notes, you can write the title down. Uh, It's called Suffering. It's going to be Suffering Sunday. I'm sorry. You're like, why did I come to this service? Uh, But it's Suffering, Stewardship, and Glory. Suffering, Stewardship, and Glory. We're going to learn how to think like a Christian. Amen? Amen. Uh, Go ahead and bow your heads, close your eyes as we pray. Father, I thank you that you're with us uh, this morning. And uh, we bless you, we love you, but we just thank you for your goodness, and I thank you that uh, you're at work in our lives. We just open up our hearts to you, Jesus, and uh, we thank you for moving in our lives, changing us in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn really quick to Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. And we're going to begin with the theme of suffering. St. Paul, we've been talking about Paul. Uh, he's teaching us how to reframe uh, how we see suffering. In other words, suffering should never define you. Suffering, and I'm going to flesh this out over the next few minutes, suffering should never define you, but how you respond to suffering should be the thing that defines you. Can I get an amen? So Paul's going to teach us how to do that, but he, in verse 24, uh, in chapter 1, he, he writes something It's pretty awkward. I mean, if I had to change a grammar, I probably would change a grammar with Paul. Paul says this. He goes, now I rejoice. I lost the text. Now I rejoice. It's back again. And everyone said amen to the, just amen. All right. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Okay. Lord, have mercy. I I have a problem with this. I actually was half tempted not to talk about this text or this verse at all this week. Uh, how many of you are like no pain, no gain kind of a people? Raise your hand if you're like that. Okay, I'm a no pain, no pain guy. Right, no pain, no pain. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Like, if I, again, I'd change a grammar to maybe like I rejoice uh, in spite of my sufferings or I rejoice in the midst of my sufferings. But Paul says, says something stronger. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. 
right? I'm not the guy who, man, if you come and you break my clavicle, I don't even know where my clavicle is, but I'm just, just go with me. Like my collarbone, right? Tony Romo broke it three times, so like I share his pain. So wherever the clavicle is, you come and break my clavicle, I'm not going to shout to the Lord with the voice of triumph. <laughs> Rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Now remember, Paul is writing from a prison in Ephesus to this young church, formerly pagan, now Christian. Uh, they're young. They're trying to figure out how to negotiate this pagan world as they put Jesus as the center of their lives. Remember last week we talked about how Jesus is the centerpiece of the entire cosmos. Like nothing lies outside the range of the sovereign rule of Jesus. Not supernovas, not the San Antonio Spurs, not farming, not fantasy football. The whole range of things, what you go through in life does not lie outside the goodness and the love of Jesus. Can I get an amen? So then how do we, how do we process what Paul is saying here? Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Is, is he essentially saying like some of the, the desert monks, one desert monk actually was an Irish monk, I think in the 6th or 7th century, who uh, loved pain and felt like self-mutilation was the way to enter into the kingdom of God. So for seven years, he suspended himself from his armpits with iron shackles, and he asked his acolytes to take beetles to eat into his skin so that somehow he could enter into the kingdom of God. Do you believe that's Christianity? No. Do you believe that's what Paul is saying? No. No, Paul is not rejoicing in his sufferings because he delights in suffering. Uh, he doesn't like to suffer for the sake of suffering. Remember, Paul in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, he gives us some autobiographical information about his suffering. Uh, he basically went on a camping trip. And uh, he was shipwrecked once. He was beaten uh, three times with a rod, five times with 40 lashes. He was uh, cold. Uh, he was in danger in the river. He was exposed to cold and difficult circumstances. So Paul knows what it means to suffer. So what is Paul saying here? Now I rejoice in my suffering. I think what Paul is saying very clearly to this young church in Colossae, that he's kind of functioning like a, a person who's taking enemy fire and drawing the attention of the powers away from this young church. Here we see the pastoral heart of Paul in microcosm. He loves this young church. He's never even met them, but he sees his prison time, right, He's not doing prison ministry. He's in prison, and he sees his prison time. He sees his suffering as a way to draw the attention of the powers away from this young church. I think this is what Paul is saying as he says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. If we could have the text back up there, verse 24. So it's kind of like, how many of you like camping? Okay, a few of you like camping. Can you pray for my wife and I and kids? We're going to go camping this next week. And the last time I went camping, I was about 19 years old and uh, had a horrible experience and never did it, haven't gone camping since. Uh, but we're going to go out into the woods. And I just, my greatest fear, I don't know what your greatest fear is, but my greatest fear is being charged by a grizzly bear. Okay. So in a hypothetical situation, let's just say we're being charged out in the woods. I have no idea where we're going to go. We're being charged by a grizzly bear. I'm going to look at my wife and say, hey, you got this. I'll take the kids. You distract, right? 
take them. Totally kidding. I think as a parent, hopefully, uh, I'll take some pots and pans, and I don't know what you do. You grin it down. You yell at it. You scream at it. You throw sticks at it, whatever. But I'm going to try to draw the attention of the grizzly as it's charging towards our camp. I'm going to take it like a champ. And everyone said amen. Most of my friends in the front row, they're, la- they're mocking at me. I know what they're thinking. They think I'm going to leave my family. Come on. The devil is a liar, right? Um, but this is, this is exactly, I think, what Paul is suggesting, that he is uh, he's drawing the attention of the powers because he loves this young church. But then he says something even, he says something even stronger. He says, in my flesh I am filling, this is verse 24, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. I'm going to read that again. And in my flesh, this has confused a lot of uh, scholars. Uh, a lot of cults have twisted this. Um, a lot of people are just really confused about what Paul is suggesting. And I, so I want to read it again. I want to do my best to explain this. It says, in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. For us to understand what Paul is saying, first, we got to understand that Paul's not suggesting that the achievements of Jesus are inadequate. Can I get an amen to that? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is enough. One pastor said, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. It's only Jesus. We can't add to what Jesus has already done for us. He rescued us. You didn't rescue yourself. He saved us. You didn't save yourself, right? He came and he healed you. He forgave you. He's at work in your life, not because you deserve anything. It's all because of the achievements of Jesus. So Paul is not suggesting that like he's adding to what Jesus um, didn't totally finish. No, he's simply saying he's extending uh, or he's participating in the life of the gospel. So what that means is, and I'm going to, can I nerd out for two minutes in some biblical theology? How many like the deep end of the pool? You just like to jump at the deep end of the pool, okay? So can you give me two minutes to nerd out on some biblical theology? I think what Paul is saying or suggesting is he's drawing on like this ancient belief about the apocalypse. Rabbis in the second temple period leading up to the day of Jesus, uh, Old Testament prophets, uh, uh, they, they talked about this, they wrote about this, this magnificent future world where God's new age would come and arrive or rush forward into the present, overlapping with the old age. So God's future world or God's new age would be defined by healing, it would be defined by grace, it would be defined by the transformation of space and time and the world as we know it. It would arrive and it would kind of like overlap with old creation. Old creation is shaped and defined by evil and destruction and uh, disfigured lives and people turned on themselves. And rabbis and Old Testament prophets felt like the tension of this overlapping of new age and new age, God's new age, not the new age, but God's new age, let me clarify. And the old age, this tension would be shaped by suffering. So many Old Testament, and I can't get into it, but a lot of Old Testament thinkers and even rabbis um, deduced that the time when God's future world arrived into the present would be a time of suffering, but that suffering was a prelude to the age of the king. So in other words, as one scholar says, that suffering you suffered, or the suffering of the people of God was a sign. Everyone say a sign. 
that God's brand new world had broken in on this old, sad, um, old creation. That suffering was evidence that God was at work in your life. And I think this is why Paul can say, I rejoice in suffering. Because his suffering functions kind of like training camp. If you know anything about football, uh, right now the NFL, they're in training camp right now. And they are suffering. Can I get an amen? They're hitting each other. They're doing strength training. Uh, they got two-a-days, three-a-days. Uh, they're trying to get them, their, body, their bodies ready for the season. The season's right around the corner. They have preseason games. So I think what, um, what Paul is suggesting is that this time of suffering that he's experiencing is like training camp. It's anticipating what's right around the corner. And what's right around the corner is the healing of the cosmos. It's God transforming space and time and matter and bodies and brains and, and our experiences and healing our hearts. It, this is good news. So I think Paul can rejoice and I think we can rejoice as we see our suffering in light of this apocalyptic backdrop. Like some of us aren't being persecuted, but some of us have experienced the full, you know, maybe some of us more than others, a range of suffering moments, right? Some of you might have got a bad, bad diagnosis this year. Maybe some of you, your, your family, a loved one walked out on you. Maybe you've been betrayed by a friend. Maybe um, you're praying for a son and daughter and they're away from the Lord. Maybe you have uncertainty today. Maybe you're struggling with someone that you haven't even told anybody about. Maybe you have a, maybe just something that, that's causing you to doubt or to question. Maybe even the existence of God and, and your suffering inside. Maybe there's some Christians here today, you're suffering through maybe mild depression, maybe major depression, and you, 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 you're confused. You don't know how to process it. I remember at the age of 17, I, and some of you have heard this story, I, um, I grew up, uh, I had the greatest parents, uh, Pastor Ken and Connie. How many of you love them? Love Pastor Ken and Connie. Um, had a great childhood experience. My sisters, they were all right. Um, you know, I have one story, the long and short of it, my sister Tracy, she threw a knife at me. So things got a little bit crazy in the wild household. Um, but growing up, we, we generally were untouched by um, suffering. I had a lot of dreams or a lot of things that I wanted to do with my life. And then at the age of 17, I was running track. It was a Monday. I'm doing intervals. So I'm running 200s, about six of them. I couldn't fish, uh, finish like half of these intervals. Had to go to my coach and say, Coach, I'm not feeling well. I need to go home. So I went home. Uh, long and short, uh, I take a five-hour nap. I wake up. The whole room's swimming. I go to the doctor that weekend. Uh, they do um, some lab work, and then about three days later, they tell me, and it shattered my world. They told me that uh, I was a type 1 diabetic, and my life will never be the same. Shattered my world. I remember for a year, I was just disoriented. I was trying to figure out, God, why, why would this happen to me? I remember I had a buddy that came to me. He was a Christian and said, you know what, Chris, you probably need to repent of a sin, Right? Like somehow, like, like I made a certain amount of sins, and that was causally related to, like, the sickness. And my retort to him is, I know a lot of unchurched people, and they know how to sin, but they didn't get type 1 diabetes. So how do you put that in your theological pipe, and how about you smoke that, right? And you get sick on that. Christians say the darndest things, right? 
So I was just, you know, I was confused. I got to be honest with you. My whole world was upside down. I could not process suffering. I wanted to scream. I wanted to shout. I didn't want to rejoice. I didn't want to praise God. I had to change my diet, not to get too graphic, um, but I had to get a needle, and I had to stick my body with a needle and put insulin in my body and prick my finger and go to the doctor all the time and figure out this new lifestyle. Why would God do this to me? That was my question. God never really answered it, but uh, I figured some things out about my personal suffering. Maybe you've suffered more than me. Maybe you've suffered less than me. That's neither here nor there. But I have a few thoughts on suffering, a few thoughts uh, for us if we want to grow in our understanding of how to process suffering. If you're suffering, here's three thoughts for you. Number one, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. This is the good news. Jesus identifies with the suffering of his people. Jesus identifies with the suffering of his people. Acts chapter 9, 4 and 5, we have Saul, who will later be turned into Paul, is breathing threats and murder. He's on the road to Damascus. He wants to uh, persecute some Christians. He's riding on his donkey. And uh, Jesus appears to him and says this. It's fascinating. He says in verse 4, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Well, I, last time I checked, I thought, I thought Saul was on his way to persecute Christians. Not Jesus, Christians, right? Jesus is now in heaven. Heaven is God's space. Jesus is the ascended in his ascended form, right? And he's ruling the entire cosmos. Okay, so why would Jesus say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, the good news is that Jesus feels what you and I feel. We call this corporate solidarity, that the life of the church, the life of God's people is intimately bound up in the life of Jesus. It's kind of like I remember um, my, my son Wesley, he was nine months old, and uh, I mean, it was about midnight. I went up to his room, and he was acting a little funny. And uh, so I took his temperature, and he was 105. And I remember freaking out, so we had to rush him to the ER, and uh, took him about 10 hours to get an, uh, an IV into his body. He was a chubby little kid, but he was tough, so proud of him. Um, but we didn't know what was going on, and so we had to take him to uh, the hospital downtown. And I remember just being afraid, just totally afraid. I wanted to take the place of my son. I felt what he was feeling. Mom and dad, you know how this is. When your kid goes through something, you feel it. There's, there's, there's a relationship that you have with your kids. It's just you can't, you can't define it. You can't explain it. It's just there. You feel what your children go through. And I remember feeling what Wesley went through. He was diagnosed with pneumonia. Um, God saved his life. Amen. Uh, Wesley's going to be an incredible football player. He's going he's gonna to go straight to the Hall of Fame. Can I get a witness? He's going to do something great for the Lord, too. For the Dallas Cowboys and not for the Seattle Seahawks. But I remember as a, as a dad, I, I felt what, what he felt. Jesus, the good news, if you're suffering here today, Jesus feels what you feel. Your depression, maybe you've never told anybody about, Jesus feels that. He knows exactly how you're processing things. There's this solidarity that you might not even realize that you have because you're in Christ with Jesus himself.
Um, one, one author said, Jesus is where? How many of you want to know where Jesus is? Jesus is where, this author said, where the sufferer is. Jesus is always where the sufferer is. One pastor, he said this. Um, when people ask me, how do you want to be introduced? He's a public speaker. Uh, he, he goes and says, I usually propose, they say, he says his name, that I'm a pastor at this church, I'm a minister. Of course, he, he says, I'm many other things, but that is the main thing I spend my time doing in public life. He is a minister, he's a pastor. And then he says this, realize then how significant it is that the biblical writers introduce God as a father to the fatherless, a defender of the widows. This is the main thing God does in this world. He identifies with the powerless. He takes up their cause. He's basically saying that Jesus identifies with the sufferer. Jesus is for the sufferer. Sociologists, I was reading this week. How many of you like sociology? I'll try to talk this morning. But this sociologist, uh, she said that the two most powerful words ever spoken when someone's in the struggle is me too. There's something to be said about when you're going through something and you feel like you're isolated and no one knows what you're going through and then you start sharing your experience and someone says, oh yeah, I, I experienced the same thing. How many of you know that's liberating? It's liberating. It's great, it's wonderful, I, I love that, but I actually disagree with her. The two most powerful words spoken to someone in the struggle or in suffering is not someone just telling you me to. It's when God comes to you and says to your soul and your mind and your heart, me too. Some of you need to hear this today. You're struggling in your mind. You have a problem with your mind. Some of you have an addiction. Some of you, your heart is filled with uncertainty. Some of you, your heart is broken because of a betrayal. Some of you are still nursing a hurt from 20 years ago. And you need to hear this one thing loud and clear. Jesus is announcing over you, me too. I know what you feel like. I know what you're going through. And when you get this, it transforms how you see suffering. We're not called as Christians to be defined by suffering. We're called as Christians to respond to suffering. And that is what defines us. Number two is Jesus identifies with his people. Number two, it's in suffering where we really get to know who Jesus is. Rather than just simply knowing some stuff about him. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 8 through 10 writes, this is Paul, he goes, for we do not want you to be ignorant brothers of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burned beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Verse 9, indeed we felt that we had received the sentence of death, they're on the borders of death, they feel it, they know it, maybe some of you are feeling it today, you got a bad diagnosis, I want you to read these words, hear these words today, as Paul writes, but that was to make us. I like how we just reframe suffering. But that suffering, that affliction was to make us rely. Everyone say rely. Rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Verse 10. He delivered us from such a deadly peril. And he will deliver us again. Everyone say on him. 
On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. What Paul is saying is that when you go through affliction or suffering in any kind, it deconstructs first the illusion of self-sufficiency. Because this idea that I'm self-sufficient is really what keeps us from knowing Jesus. When we think we can do life in our own strength, that's what separates us from spending time with Jesus himself. Suffering is a way, and I want to be sensitive with how I say this, but suffering is a way or is designed by God. God doesn't cause it. Can I get an amen to that? He allows it to take place in our life so we can come closer to him. And it's when we're close to Jesus that we know who he is. We go beyond some abstract facts about Jesus and we get into his heart. And it's funny, probably the most unhelpful question you could ever ask. I mean, it's okay. I do it all the time. But it's, I've realized as I've gotten older that it's pretty unhelpful. And it's the question, why? Like, how many of you like reading through the book of Job in your daily Bible reading plan? Like, I, I, like, I like to fast read it, right? Or read through it really fast. Um, but I've realized something about Job. Job is... Um, the embodiment of epistemic humility. Huh? Let me just explain. Epistemic humility is that it's just the basic idea that Job will never fully understand the question why he had to suffer. The very end of the book, Job has been complaining about his suffering. The end of the book is shaped by five speeches from God to Job. And the whole time, God not once gives an answer to why Job suffered. All God does is tell Job about himself. Hey, Job, I created the solar system. Job, you know, Leviathan, no one can control him. I can. I created the ostrich, and the ostrich has a brain the size of a little penny, and it can run fast. But I love this ostrich. He just goes through zoology and biology and physics and planets and solar systems. And he's telling Job about himself. What is God doing? God is saying, I'm not going to give you the full answer to why you suffered. But I'm going to tell you something about myself. That your suffering does not lie outside the range of my love, the range of my wisdom, the range of my power, the range of my sphere. I am in charge, Job. And you can trust me. Come on, you can believe me. I'm not going to leave you abandoned. I'm not going to leave you bereft. I'm not going to leave you forlorn. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm not going to throw lightning bolts on you. I, have, I know exactly what you're going through, Job. I'm in charge. And if I can run the solar system, I can run your life. So trust me. When we, when we go through suffering, it draws us closer to Jesus. And when we're closer to Jesus... We, we begin to know him more. Let me just say something really quick. Time does not heal. Time doesn't heal what you've been through in life. Time with Jesus does. Time with Jesus heals your heartache. And when you allow and respond to suffering correctly, and you allow suffering to draw you closer to Jesus, that's when he can heal your heart. Number three, really quick, our last point, 
God uses suffering and adversity, you're going to love this, as a way to grow his life in us. Romans 5, 1 through 5. Can I just read this really quick? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. I love that. How many of you have been justified by faith? It means we're now, we, we belong to the family of God. Uh, not because of anything that we've accomplished or achieved in life, but it's through grace, it's through Jesus. And we have peace. Everyone say peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice, everyone say rejoice. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Like you're a part of the family of God. God transforms you. It's all grace. God gives you a job. You have a responsibility to reflect God's wisdom and grace back into creation. There's all these promises that we find in the Old Testament that have dramatically been fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And you have access to that. Like if we truly understood justification by faith, we would be doing the Pentecostal two-step every single Sunday. But then... (laughs) Paul switches his tone and says, more than that, we rejoice in our suffering. Paul, you did it again. Knowing that suffering produces what? Endurance. Endurance? Why? Suffering, what it will do, it will, cut, it, will, it will cut you down to size. And when you're cut down to size, you're going to have to make the difficult choice of relying on Jesus. Which means you're going to have to stick it out. You're going through a tough time. You're going to have to stick it out. That's endurance. So suffering produces endurance if you respond correctly. But when you endure over time, guess what happens? It produces character. What's character? Character is who you are. When you endure and you rely on Jesus and Jesus begins to work in your life, what happens? You begin to change. And when you begin to change, this is what I love about working out. How many of you love to work out? Put your hands down. No one in their right mind likes to work out, right? I, I grit my teeth every time I work, work out. But you know what I love about working out? I love the results. And when I get the results, the more I work out, the more results I get, the more hope I have. This is what Paul is saying. So you endure. You stick it out. You rely on Jesus. Things won't always make sense, but you put your trust in Jesus. And what will happen, by the power of the Holy Spirit, it will change who you are. And the more you see the change in your life, the more that will produce hope in you. And the more hope you have, Paul continues in verse 5. We have verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And as you have more hope, because you have more change, because you've developed endurance, because you relied on Jesus, because you responded correctly to suffering, your heart then is filled up with the love of the Holy Spirit. And that is when you truly reflect the goodness of Jesus back to the world. That's where you walk in God's anointing and blessing and grace when you allow suffering to do its work. So suffering, adversity is what grows us up. Amen? So Paul continues in verse 25 and 26. He talks about suffering. And he, I want to read this verse in uh, 25, if you could have that really quick. 
He said, of which I became a minister. So he talks about suffering, and he connects this now with stewardship. Everyone say stewardship. Which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So this stewardship theme, I I really do believe, is linked to the suffering of Paul. I, I think Paul has this profound sense that all of life, everyone say all of life. All of life is a gift. You don't own your body. You don't own your hair. You don't, you don't own your knees, your toes, your elbows. You don't own your kids. You don't own your job. You don't own your personality, your strengths, your traits, your weaknesses. You don't own your money. You don't own your resources, your house, your income, your job. You don't own anything. Suffering will bring you into clarity. Like C.S. Lewis said a long time ago, he said, suffering is like God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. When you allow suffering to do its work, it actually produces, I think, this profound sense that all that you have is a gift from God. And if you want to mature as a follower of Jesus, this has to be your, your basic foundation by which you negotiate the rest of the world. All of life is a gift. You are a steward of your money. You are a steward of your time. You are a steward of your energy. You are a steward of your gifts. God gave it to you, not so you can use them for your own sake. God gave it to you so you can use them for his sake. And when you use your gifts and your stuff and your time and your energy for God's sake, that's when you enter into life and life more abundantly of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. What I love about Paul is that he possesses this radical humility. It's kind of the opposite of of at least what we see on social media, right? It's kind of the opposite of kind of where the American consciousness or kind of the American trend is going towards. We're very self-serving in our talk. It's, it's all about self-expression. Paul doesn't, he's basically saying, I don't play that game. Uh, I'm a steward of the gifts that God has given to me, and the stewardship is for the people of God. In fact, he's, he's really not interested in himself. He's interested in other people. If you want freedom in your life, if you want authentic freedom, If you want joy, if you want peace, if you want liberty in your life, you know what you need? You need to be less interested in yourself. Man, when when you're interested in what God is doing and you're interested in what God is doing in other people more than just yourself, that is where you find true joy. So how, how do you know if you're a steward? How do you know? There's two, I, I could spend about an hour, and I totally know you want me to spend an hour with you guys today. But I could spend an hour talking about this. I'm just going to give you two points. Number one, you know that you are a steward, or you know what stewardship is all about, if you're possessed by this radical humility. Humility is not like, okay, someone coming up to you and saying, hey, you know what, I'm a nobody. Like in 1976, God broke me, and he made me less of a man, right? And I'm a worm, and I don't think of myself, 
that at all, and I try to, you know, whatever. I've, I've had conversations with people that talk like that, and I'm like, stop it, right? Uh, some people actually come to me, and they, they've told me, they've confessed that they've prayed that God would humble them. I'm like, stop it. Life will do that. You don't need to ask God to humble you. Uh, humility is not like thinking less of yourself. It's not like I'm bad, I'm horrible, God break me. Uh, humility is thinking more about God. It's thinking more about people. I want to read a quote from C.S. Lewis. Uh, he said this a long time ago. He says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, swarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he's a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in you and what you said to him. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. When you understand what stewardship is all about, you're thinking more about what God is doing and what he wants to do through you, and you're going to be thinking about what God is doing in other people. Can I get an amen? Second thing, number two, how do you know if you understand stewardship? When you give sacrificially, you celebrate. Awkward silence. When you give sacrificially, you don't grumble. You're like, oh, man, I got to give again. We're not talking about just your money. We're talking about your life. We're talking about your resources. We're talking about your time. Wouldn't it be weird if I came up to you, and you guys know that I love the Dallas Cowboys, right? And I told you one Sunday that, man, I have an opportunity to go watch the Cowboys play, and Tony Romo wants to be my best friend, and I'm going to go to Dallas, and I'm going to spend time with him, but it's going to take a lot of money, but I don't care. I'm going to sell something. I'm going to do whatever I can so I can go down and spend time with the Dallas Cowboys. You would probably think that makes sense. Maybe not if you're not a Dallas Cowboy fan. If I was to grumble, like, oh, man, I got to, uh, really? I mean, I got I to gotta give up, like, maybe a couple hundred bucks to get a, get a ticket. I mean, I just go to this game. It's just disappointing. And you know how much I love the Cowboys. You would think there was something wrong with me. I think there's something wrong when Christians, when they give sacrificially, they, they feel like they're forced to do it. Or they're whining their way through life. Like, I gave all this, why isn't that person given? Or why, and you, you compare maybe your gift with what other people are given, and you think you're given more, and like, you just, you just have this weird perspective that, uh, man, man, God, you know, I, I don't even know what to say about that perspective, right? But you just feel like maybe God owes you something. When you understand stewardship, when you give uh, sacrificially, you don't grumble, you don't whine, you don't complain, you celebrate, your heart is filled with joy. It's not like, oh, man, I have to give. You're filled with, I get an opportunity to give my life away to help this person be blessed and filled with the love of God. When you give sacrificially, you celebrate. Amen. So Paul continues. He talks about suffering. He talks about this stewardship motif. The stewardship theme should shape our lives. He then goes to verse 26. I'm going to read verse 26 really quick. He then switches gears and he says, The mystery hidden for the ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. So this is, there's an ap apocalyptic backdrop to this. Apocalypse simply means to disclose something. 
means to reveal something. My wife used to make um, a lot of soup. And how many love soup? Soups. Um, I remember one day I came into the house and there was this incredible smell. I didn't know what it was. She was making this soup. And I remember I came around the corner, came into the kitchen, and I opened up the pot and I saw that it was, well, it was a really good soup. That is what apocalypse is all about. It's seeing for the first time what you've smelled for some time or you've discerned for some time. This is how apocalypse works in the biblical account. Apocalypse is that there were some things that were a mystery to God's people in the Old Testament, but now was revealed in the person and the work of Jesus. God's plan, everyone say plan. God's plan, God's purpose was revealed in the work of Jesus. Now we know what God is up to when it comes to restoring and rescuing and healing our lives. Can I get an amen to that? So this mystery is not like something that's supposed to puzzle us. This mystery has been revealed and disclosed through Jesus. Then we go to verse 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. The hope of glory. Glory is not luminosity. Glory is not shining like Rihanna's diamonds. I say that every other week. Glory is not uh, shining like an electric light bulb in heaven. Glory for Paul is that the pagan world, through faith and repentance, is welcomed into God's family. Pretty simple. That all of the nobodies, all the misfits, all the undesirables, all the left out uh, people, they're all included, or they now can belong in the family of God. In other words, at the foot of the cross, all things are leveled. All things. So you're no longer defined by your socioeconomic background. You're no longer defined by your genetic profile. You're no longer defined by what your mom did or what your dad did. You're no longer defined by your past or your personality traits. You don't belong because somehow you, you did something to achieve God's favor. No, it's because of the cross. It's because of Jesus and what he accomplished for you and I through faith and through repentance, which means you're, you're changing how you think and you're trusting in God's way and God's plan for your life that you now belong and you now are a part of God's family. And Paul says, this is glory. There's no longer a dividing wall between the pagan world and God's family. It's breathtaking. In other words, God doesn't play favorites. Like some of you still believe that there's some people in the church that are on the top and the rest of us are on the bottom. It's like laissez-faire economics. The rich keep on getting richer and all the rest of us, we just don't get the blessing that everybody else gets. That does not play in the kingdom of Jesus. Come on. You belong because of Jesus and the achievements of Jesus' death and resurrection. It's beautiful. One scholar, I want to I quote really quick, Thomas Cahill. He said, this was absolutely unthinkable. In this ancient symbolic world of masters and slaves, conquerors and conquered, 
a world that articulated at every turn precisely and publicly who's on top, who's on bottom, Paul declares as unthinkable. He says, there's no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Just so you know, we don't look at you or we don't base your worth on your income or what you wear or if you say the right things. We want to get you to the point where you can say the right things. But man, your welcome in the family of God is based on the saving, rescuing death of your Savior, King Jesus. So powerful. And this is glory. The second aspect of this glory uh, Paul is alluding to is found in Genesis chapter 1. This glory is now Christ lives in you. Genesis chapter 1. If you were in the ancient Near East and you read an account of a God creating the world in six days, you would assume that God was creating a temple. In other words, the creation story in Genesis chapter 1 is that all of God's creation is a temple. And a temple in this ancient world was a place for the gods to dwell. So when you see in Genesis chapter 1 that God makes the whole world, you would assume that he's building a temple. And you would also assume that God wants to flood this temple with his presence, his love, and his goodness. We come to Genesis chapter 2. What does God do? He makes a garden. Everyone say garden. And he puts man and woman in this garden. This garden is a temple. We come to Genesis chapter 3. We know man and woman, they, they fell, they rebelled against God, and it unleashed this, this series of devastating effects on creation. We call this sin and evil, disfigured God's good world. But what does God do? We find in Exodus, God comes to a man named Moses and gives him very specific instructions to create a tabernacle. Have you ever wondered why God wanted the people of God to make a tabernacle? Why? Well, God wanted the tabernacle to be like a portable temple. God wanted to fill the temple, the tabernacle, as a way to demonstrate that one day in the future, God will flood the entire world once again with his presence. Then we come to the days of Jesus. Jesus, what do we find him? Uh, before his death, he's in a garden, and he says yes to the will of God in a garden. When he comes back from the dead, where is he? He sees Mary, and he changes Mary's name to Miriam. This is a demonstration of new creation. And where does this take place? It takes place in a garden. And then we find in Revelation chapter 22, you have the new Jerusalem. It's not a garbage city. It's a garden city. And it comes down and brings heaven, new heavens, and new earth together. And God makes all things new and floods the entire world with his presence. So when Paul talks about the hope of glory, what is he saying? He is saying that you and I are like a temple. And he wants to flood our lives with his power and his grace and his presence and his love and his life. And we are summoned to reflect that back into our world. Don't get too excited on me. It's powerful. This is the hope of glory. 
that God wants to dwell with us. It's exactly what we want. Can I get an amen? And then Paul continues in verse 28 as I land this plane and we're going to pray for you. Him we, pro- uh, him we proclaim. For Paul, the most important thing is Jesus. Jesus is the beginning. Jesus is the end. Paul isn't concerned about commenting on culture so much, and I think that's important. Paul isn't so much concerned about 18 steps on how to raise your family, and I think that's really good. For Paul, the most important thing is declaring every single day that Jesus is the king of the world. That's our starting point. When we start there, everything else falls into place. When we put something else in the place of Jesus and we don't start with Jesus as the king of the world, as the centerpiece of everything, then everything in our life gets displaced. What do you want, I think Paul is saying. I want Jesus, and he proclaims Jesus, as the Lord of all. And then he says, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Three times he says everyone. Everyone say everyone. So I'm going to read this again. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Everyone say everyone. Everyone mature in Christ. Paul doesn't think there's like a classification when it comes to Christians. There's no hierarchical structure where there's some Christians that are complete and they're really blessed and they live a life of faith and they live the life of abundance and uh, they pray all the time and they read their Bibles and they believe for great things and then you have a rest of, of us Christians like down here trying to survive in life. Well, Paul is saying that everyone, this is his goal, every single Christian can enter into this maturity in Christ, can enter into this complete state in Christ. Now, we don't believe in perfection on this side of new heavens and new earth and resurrection, but we do believe believe that God wants to mature us in Him. Some of you actually think you can't believe like you know you're supposed to believe. Some of you feel like you can't read your Bible like you're supposed to read your Bible. Some of you believe that you can't forgive like you're supposed to forgive. Some of you believe you can't love like you're supposed to love. Some of you believe you can't sacrifice like you can't, like you're supposed to sacrifice. And I'm here to tell you today that is a lie. What God wants to do is not just for a few select people. What God wants to do is for everyone. And he wants to bring us into maturity. He wants to complete us. Come on. He wants to grow us up into Christ. But how how does God do that? Paul says God does that through warning and teaching. Warning and teaching. That word warning means to put the mind back to order suggests that the mind is dislocated. The mind is muddled in its thinking about God. And before Paul can teach and encourage, how many, let me just say this, how many of you believe that God just doesn't want to break us down, he wants to build us up? I believe that. But some of us have these perceptions about God 
and we wonder why we can't understand the basic things about the Christian story. And it's usually because our perceptions of God are tragically misconceived. And sometimes we need some instruction. We need some warning. We need every now and then some rebuke. We need, we need a preacher, a redheaded preacher, every now and then to come and to challenge how we think about things. You need to be warned. Because you can't receive the positive teaching, the encouragement, this is Paul's thinking, without God coming and deconstructing some thoughts. Like, man, how many golfers do we have here? A few of you, okay? So if you have a wicked slice and you want a golf pro to like deconstruct your swing or to change your swing, the first thing that that golf pro is gonna do, he's gonna tell you what you're doing wrong. Why? He wants to break you down? No. He, he, he wants to train you. He wants to fix your mechanics so you can swing right. To swing right means you have to deconstruct some, some bad mechanics. This is what Paul is saying. I'm coming and this is how you grow. I'm coming to you and this is how you grow up in Christ when you listen to some truth spoken in love. Can I get an amen to that? Not truth spoken in hate, but truth spoken in love. You get some warning, you get some thoughts um, that, that are wrong, corrected. That's when you can then begin to understand all that God has for you. I really do think maybe some of you aren't thinking straight about God because you're not listening to the warnings. And Paul says, if you wanna grow up in Christ, you have to listen to good teaching good warning, good instruction. This is why I just don't think we should miss a Sunday as much as possible. We should get as much teaching as possible. I was hoping for a better amen on that. I'm going to be honest with you. Yes, let's go on vacation. It's summer. I love summer. Have a great time. Do some fun things. Uh, but I think you, if you make a commitment to come to church as much as possible, you're going to get good instruction, you're going to get good teaching, and you're going to find yourself over a couple months. It might take some time. For some of you, it might be like a year or two, but God is good. Can I get an amen? But over time, you will find yourself growing up in Christ. So, how do we grow up in Christ? How do we handle suffering? How do we, how do we enter into a life of stewardship? How, how, do we, how do we access this hope of glory that Paul talked about? He ends in verse 29, and this is where I end. He says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I struggle. He's using an athletic competition metaphor. I struggle. Not in my energy, but his energy. How do we do what God's called us to do? We do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't live without the Holy Spirit. We can't do what God's called us to do without the Holy Spirit. I can't preach messages without the Holy Spirit. I can't write books without the Holy Spirit. I can't worship without the Holy Spirit. I can't read my Bible without the Holy Spirit. God knows I can't raise my babies without the Holy Spirit. I can't do what God's called me to do without the presence, the indwelling presence of Jesus. I can't do it. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. It's how we handle grief and struggle and suffering. The Holy Spirit helps us to understand that our life is all about not us, it's about Him. 
This is how we enter into his glory. Come on. This is how we grow up in Christ when we open our heart to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Can you give Jesus a hand this morning? Thanks for listening to this week's message from Capital Christian. We hope you will stay connected by following us online. To find out more information, visit us at capitalchristian.com. 